Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Foreign and Domestic Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Will. Um, and first off, so we did not, we actually recorded an episode last week, but I had some technical difficulties with uploading it, which that should be fixed this week. Um, and by the time it, it, it would have been possible to upload it, it would have been out of date. And I, I think actually we we benefit from having a little more hindsight and time seeing a lot of this play out to give a more nuanced and smarter assessment of the situation. Mm -hmm. So basically, so. today we're mainly going to be talking about um, the widespread protests that are uh, going around um, in the U.S. and their implications here and abroad. Yeah. Um, so this has, like, become a very... Directly after Floyd died, there was, like, a remarkable consensus around it just being bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there wasn't... People weren't defending him. Yeah, I don't which, think anybody... I don't think I've seen anybody defend the police in this case. Yeah. Um, but, you know, every issue has to polarize at some point, and, and this one did. <laughs> so the, you know, line that this is polarized around is conservatives predominantly are concerned about instances of rioting, um, and liberals would rather focus on, A, the systemic problems that led to the death of George Floyd, and B, the response to what are mostly peaceful protests mm -hmm. by yeah, the police. Basically, to clarify, obviously yeah, there is rioting going on, yeah, of course, but the majority of these protests are actually peaceful, um, and that's something that we should get out of the way before we continue talking about this because um a lot of uh, the attention is on the riots and like the negative impacts of like what's going on but um it's important to note that pretty much um ev most of the people who are involved in this are not rioters and uh, the vast majority of these are peaceful protests yeah and, and something that i think especially at the beginning wasn't necessarily articulated terrifically by like people who are aligned with the Democratic Party on, like, Twitter or Facebook or on uh, cable news is that, obviously, rioting is bad. But mm. the issue is that law enforcement seems to be unable to distinguish between the rioters and the peaceful protesters and have decided to treat them all the same, which is, like, in my opinion, a bigger issue than the rioting itself. Mm-hmm. But I think pretty just obviously, objectively, it, it's a more actionable issue. Like, you can you can do stuff about the police. Like, you can legislate. You can, like, there, there are things that can be done that, you know, create widespread change in, in that area. But you don't have, like, a, a mechanism where you can just, like rioting is fundamentally just isolated criminal acts by individuals acting in a horde mentality there's no like there's no organization that's doing it mm -hmm. furthermore the state is not doing it so it's 
I think what's what's not been articulated terrifically it, 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 is that that's really really what it comes down to. Yeah, and I think another issue is you have this sort of weird situation where you have. You know, police in many places, not all places. I know there are some places where, you know, the police aren't wearing riot gear and they're, it, it's, it's much less escalated. But in many places, you have, like, police tripped out in all of their, like, quasi-military equipment. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it looks like it's just horrifying images. But at the same time, the people that those police are largely coming into contact with and the ones that they're largely you know using undue amounts of force upon are the peaceful protesters rather than the rioters because like if you're the police chief right Mm -hmm. you know that like the life of your officers is more important than property damage. So you're not going to want to send officers into a situation where they're, they're vastly outnumbered and, and they could get seriously injured, even killed by rioters. Mm-hmm. So that leads them to get into confrontation with protesters and sometimes the protesters are, like, you know, loud and ag- aggressive, but, like, not doing anything certainly uncalled for. Yeah. So, it just, that's what's created these scenes of, like, you know, people being shot with rubber bullets for, for seemingly nothing, just horrifying stuff that... I think really crystallizes the the message behind the protest, which is police seem to think that they're able to act with impunity whenever they deem that they feel that there is some threat, whether that threat is real or not. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, the police as an institution have, have not acquitted themselves very well. And I think another aspect of this to sort of put into perspective, like, if you think about the killing of George Floyd, initially it seems like a small-scale personal tragedy. But, like, think about the implications. Because as a society, like, our government is at a, a very base level organized around the state having a monopoly on violence. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, you don't get to go out and, you know, do vigilante justice or... The idea is the state is violent, so individual actors don't have to be. Yeah. But what's necessary there is that the state applies that violence when it's warranted and only when it's warranted. And this is a a case where like the state like 
I mean, obviously that officer was a very bad man, but in that moment he was representing the state. So fundamentally the state killed George Floyd. Yeah. So that makes it somewhat more understandable to have protests. I, I'm, again, want to be clear, I'm not condoning riots. Riots are like, do more harm than good. Mm. Property damage in almost every case is bad. If you're, you know, vandalizing Confederate monuments, I say all the power to you. But <laughs> yeah, other ba- basically, that, we're, we're not endorsing rioting, We but we support the protests. I endorse vandalizing Confederate monuments as well. <laughs> I think that's... Yeah, although we've seen a lot of vandalism recently of monuments that really shouldn't be vandalized. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's... Yeah, but... That's sort of a, a different issue, and, like, the whole discussion of how, how we treat history and how we commemorate history is a, an, an interesting one, mm-hmm. but I think probably one for another time. Yeah. And I... I think you've sort of seen pop out of this very reasonable measured reforms, like somebody who's really been driving the car on this um, in a way that I don't think is, is surprising necessary necessarily given that he's obviously a civil libertarian is Justin Amash who has this bill to end qualified immunity, which means basically in the existing system right if if you were beaten by an officer you are not able to sue that officer for those damages in civil court Mm -hmm. because they have something called qualified immunity this would basically remove that so the idea is this would make it harder for police officers to act with impunity and you've seen a lot of a lot of like sort of popular democrats like AOC like you know all all the like house of representatives democrats whose names you or I would know yeah seem to be jumping on and co-sponsoring this bill so you have that and then you have sort of between both like sort of civil libertarian people and i think this is becoming more broadly a a topic of conversation um, among liberals are calling for things like abolishing police unions mm-hmm. because and i mean there's a difficult line to thread because like ideologically the two issues cut across each other like if you're a conservative you're pro-police but you are generally anti-public sector unions if you're a liberal you are generally pro-public sector unions and i wouldn't say anti-police but But would probably rather have the police have their powers limited yeah more more like in favor of police reform and changing how the criminal justice system works basically and like this is a proposal that people that i in my sort of ideological space people who are who are definitely liberal but have uh, i would say a healthy skepticism of public sector unions writ large 
mm-hmm. and police unions and really law enforcement unions in particular have been talking about for years, but it's, it's become a proposal that's been more widely accepted among the Democratic Party. So, so I think that's progress too. But then you also see like more radical proposals. One thing that's become a motto at least is abolish the police right mm-hmm. which that doesn't mean abolish the police yeah. like it, nobody it means reform that... it and change it and stuff like that but the thing is a lot of people are looking at it like straight up just get rid of police and like people are seeing that as oh i guess people just want no protection from crimes or whatever even though that's not really the meaning behind that yeah i mean the way i look at that is just rebuild like the police as an institution which is something that i think is is difficult to do and would probably take a lot of work and research and is not even necessarily practical to do given that you know the way police operate varies largely from municipality to municipality from state to state but like the police are somewhat ill-suited as an institution to the jobs that they actually do. And it, mm-hmm. they're becoming less suited to that as time goes on, it seems like. Like, there's been much talk about this militarization of of police. You know, they they buy surplus military equipment. and And you have these just... I mean, when you see these police and all this gear and the streets of Minneapolis and other places I mean that's that's where they get it it's this 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 has been a trend for some time yeah but alongside that you have the growing realization that the the job of a police officer what it calls for more often than not would be jobs better served by a social like this is something that's been articulated um by lots in the media recently but i I mean i personally recall i forget what the the general oh you know what it was a there was a career um at our school for people who are listening that don't know there's this thing or i guess my former school now but uh there's every thursday there's a late start and a lot of people get there early and you sometimes have different options to do we call it plc but on one such day i think in my freshman or sophomore year there was a like sort of career learn about a career thing and the person that was there was the person who was like the resident uh, cop at our school at the time and what he said really struck me which was most of the time and I actually had a chance to discuss this with him further earlier this year but it, it, what he said was when you're called to a situation right the people that are there you're seeing them on what is likely one of if not the worst day of their lives mm-hmm. And that being said, most situations in which 
police, you know, are called or arrive. In fact, the vast majority are not ones in which the the police in any way threaten or exert force. Yeah. So it seems to me that that particular detective was very well suited to to this role because he understands that you sort of have the the job is really connecting with the people and helping them navigate these difficult situations you're often dealing with people who have mental health issues so so training in that regard is important but at the same time like the way cops become cops is not because they want to be social workers or like mental health professionals like people who want to do that do that and it seems to me that you know cops become cops for other reasons um because it's a certain lifestyle because it's a certain identity that appeals to people mm-hmm. but the other facets of the identity that are largely driven by like what we see on tv and and how culturally police officers are perceived that's not really super compatible with what the day-to-day jobs of policemen are yeah so this is like a long-winded way of saying if you could build an institution like if you could build the institution from the ground up or if you could have it undergo major reforms you would want like obviously you're going to need guys who are able to execute the state monopoly on force when it is called for but that in fact is very rare and that's not the whole job anyways yeah the vast majority of the job is is the other part so if you can have it be identified culturally if you can have it be identified in in training more as a job where you're exercising these other skills and maybe there's more requirements for training, for mental health professionals. Maybe you even create different divisions of police departments to yeah. answer different calls. But so, there's something like the military has, where there's like different spe- specialists of particular fields. Even even though it's just one big thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, have the police yeah. departments have specialists in different departments for those situations? Yeah, and I mean. A lot of this is also, like, an argument that a lot of places, like, where we live is, like, a a relatively, it's a pretty wealthy kind of upscale suburb, Mm. right? And, And the function that the police fill in our city is, at worst, you know, sort of harassing punk teenagers which i certainly have no problem with because i can't stand those people either but (laughs) yeah but i mean that could be a whole different argument but really what what they do is it seems that a lot of them are are very well suited to that sort of more nuanced you know social work aspect of the job and there are also ways in which like 
it is with something as small as like speeding tickets like it is the express stated policy of our police department that they want to avoid giving tickets mm-hmm. like there's like a seven mile per hour grace window and then there's you know a certain amount of warnings and it, it, it's just it, it's difficult to get a ticket here quite frankly which is and very nice it is. I mean, I try not to abuse it because it's, you know, it's it's nice to have. You don't want to lose it. But, yeah. but the, the fact of the matter is other communities don't have police departments that operate in that way. Right. So when, when I hear abolish the police, I think that's, you know, it's a snappy tagline. I think what we should really be looking at is how we can build completely reform this institution that clearly has some large structural problems Mm -hmm. so if we now want to sort of segue into we're gonna for the foreign we're gonna stay on this topic but we're gonna now transition to how it plays into foreign policy yeah and so like i think the most immediate thing in that regard is the fact that there's similar protests um sort of in solidarity with the ones in the united states happening um around the world like um in particular um i've seen them in sweden um though there's a lot of black lives matter protests in sweden um one of my friends has uh who lives there has uh, shown me videos of them and things like that um i think i heard also that um people in greece i think uh, either vandalized or like firebombed the U.S. Emb- embassy there, or something like that. I'll have to verify that, but something happened in regards to the U.S. embassy there. I, th- I think there might have been protests outside of it as well. Um, and like in most of the West, there is um, protests um, about this, uh, even if it's not uh, in the United States. I think Toronto's had one as well. Yes. Yeah, so actually, speaking of Toronto, um, I think there's a, a tendency for especially like liberals in the u.s to put european countries and canada up on a pedestal and in many ways especially with this these issues they are doing better with us but i mean you you often get the sense that a lot of people view a a lot of sort of like white liberals view europe as this like (laughs) utopia yeah which first of all I mean, just sort of like a wonky economic point. I feel like people don't realize that standards of living in Europe, even in Western Europe, are like significantly lower. Not like drastically. They're mm. still first world countries, but standards of living are, are, are significantly lower. But but I digress. Because like, a lot of these countries where protests are happening, they're, they're sparked by and in solidarity with the protests happening in the United States. But a lot of these countries also have their own issues with, you know, how police use force. And there are cases in which people have been killed by the police in those countries as well. Certainly mm-hmm. not a problem the way it is in the U.S. But in Toronto in particular, police dispersed 
um, protests pretty forcefully. So I, I, I just think it's worth noting that other countries have issues somewhat similar to this as well. Most of those countries, in fact, none of them really have as as fraught uh, and horrifying a, a history of you know slavery and race relations as we do in the U.S. But I do think it's important to note that. Yeah. And, and the other big point I would make is that, like. <laughs> The way that, you know, police and the Trump administration have responded to these protests is not just bad domestic policy. It's also, like, concretely damaging to U.S. foreign policy. Like, I mean, in many ways, like, global geopolitics relies quite a bit on, on the reputation of countries. Yeah. Right. And in the U S has these images, like if we're to put this into the context of, you know, China, U S relations, right. And the, you know, conflict between those two countries, if you were, and it's it's very clear to me, and, and I, I think should be abundantly clear to everybody, that China is far, far worse on issues of human rights than the United States oh, is. Yeah. I mean, like, what hap- what, what's happening with, like, police reactions and the killing of George Floyd and, and the way those protests have been handled is, is horrific, it's terrible, but... I mean, there are millions of Uyghur Muslims locked up in concentration camps Mm -hmm. in China. There's cultural erasement of non-Han ethnic groups in China as well. And obviously the things in Hong Kong, Hong Kong also. Yeah. so. So, but from the perspective of like, let's just take, for example, a, a generic African nation where, I mean, in many cases, they're forced to look to China because the U.S. has not built, like, an economic infrastructure to help with the development of China, but that's, or not China, development of Africa. But that's a whole different issue. But if you're if you're looking and, you know, maybe a vote in the U.N. is coming up, mm-hmm. right? And China has state control of of what its media puts out so its media does not put out things that are critical of it ours does Mm -hmm. and they should yeah that's but in this case democracy yeah it's one million percent a necessity I, i i i don't mean this to be construed as as anti free press or or anything of that matter but if you're looking at the two different narratives from these countries, you could see how one would be inclined to think that China on the U S and, and the U S were on say equal human rights footing when that is not even remotely the scenario. Yeah. 
And I think another problem is you have like literal <laughs> dictatorial tyrants like the Ayatollah Khomeini making what are like obvious appeals to um, just internet leftists. Yeah. By like tweeting like Black Lives Matter and stuff, which, you know what? I mean, that that's good. People should tweet that. But but when but it's coming from the the leader of Iran and the president yeah. of Turkey, <laughs> it's just it's absurd. I mean, you have I like the Ayatollah Khomeini literally assisted like their connections to. Correct me if I have some of the you know connections wrong here, but. Iran's government essentially assisted um, Bashar al-Assad in the gassing of his own people. Mm -hmm. And they currently back up his government anyways. Um, yeah. And th that's, that itself is, is, is a crime, in my opinion. And, yeah, like, using tear gas to get a photo op is ridiculous and horrifying and just completely terrible mm -hmm. and is certainly grounds for a numerous passive recourse against the American president, namely removal from office via the election. But tear gas is tear gas. Tear gas was not what Charles Assad was using. Yeah. There's a difference people. between tear gas and, you know, a nerve gas. Like, th this is the difference between mass atrocities, like, crimes against humanity that are, that are so vile and evil that you struggle to wrap your mind around. Mm -hmm. And something that's stupid and, and not worthy of the presidency and ridiculous that it happened in America. Yeah. Right. Like there, there are differences of scale. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to be like litigating that the United States has a better human rights track record than China and Iran, but there are a not insignificant amount of people who are vulnerable to you know, persuasion because they have, you know, if you're somebody who's like, say, aligned with the left, right, mm -hmm. in terms of domestic politics, but doesn't really think about foreign policy, right? Yeah, like, maybe yeah. the extent to which you think about it is Iraq war bad. <laughs> yeah. Which. Spe speaking of that, the tear gas and stuff or whatever. Um, I've seen some tweets from Twitter leftists. It's kind of ironic. They've they've started to accept that Saddam Hussein actually gassed people. Um, yeah. Because they're trying to draw comparisons to him to Trump. It's kind of funny. Yeah, but, but I, yeah, I'm saying if you're like somebody who's who's maybe gotten super involved in domestic politics, huge Bernie Sanders fan, you're maybe reading so, stuff from some like lefty outlets. You're on the whole. Biden is as bad as, or if not worse than Trump, mm 
Mm-hmm. Like you've, if, if you're a leftist and you've, you know, twisted your mind into that position somehow, but then you see, you know, you, you're feeling strongly about the, the situation right now with regards to the riots. And then you see somebody, a leader of a foreign country posting something in favor on Twitter. Like there is a reaction there where you're like, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, even if that enemy of your enemy may be Iran. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm saying is, well, it seems obvious and, and not necessarily timely for us to like be litigating the fact that the United States is better than tyrannical dictatorships. There's a necessity to doing it when people are vulnerable to falling into that whole, you know, like tanky trap. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, speaking of tanks, another, you know, it it seems that sometimes, like, this must be planned by somebody, because Mm -hmm. things seem too timely. Like, all of this is going on. This conversation that we're having is happening on the anniversary of the incident in Tiananmen Square in China. So, I... I don't, it's it's a pretty yeah. remarkable yeah. situation. It's kind of um, interesting. Yeah. Do you have anything more you want to add about um, foreign policy before we then really quick talk about the implications of all, all of these events for, you know, who is going to be Joe Biden's running name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think I've I think I've covered it pretty much. Okay, so we have, <laughs> yeah. There's, it's been the implication of recent news events is that it's become even more essential for Joe Biden to appoint a woman of color, particularly a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, or to choose her as his running mate because of, you know, racial um, injustice being brought to the forefront. So that's kind of... I think Kamala Harris was already sort of the... I mean, she was leading the betting markets. I mean, betting markets are... Look, like, I, I was thinking, I'm, I'm about to turn 18, and I was thinking about, well, there's not really going to be that much new. Like, I can't drive, I, I mean, I, I can drive, but it's not like I, I already, I could drive already. I can't drink, um, but the one thing I can do is I can now go on betting markets for elections and for stuff <laughs> like this, which is some of the easiest money you've ever seen. I like, wonder, do they have betting markets for, like, African elections, because that <laughs> would be start, so easy. Start one. <laughs> I mean, you could win every time. Markets are about exploiting information imbalances, and you certainly have freakish amount of knowledge about such elections. We, we should we should have one for the uh, North Korean election. Huh, I wonder who's going to win that one. See, I, yeah, the yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, probably probably Kim Jong Un, but <laughs> that was my last guess, actually. Really? <laughs> but anyway, so Kamala Harris has sort of been like the odds favorite for for some time, but now she seems even more likely, and, and somebody who's really sort of skyrocketed up in in the rankings is Val Deming, mm. who is a congresswoman from Florida, from the I-4 corridor, which, um, if you don't know, is a region of Florida that is famous for being incredibly swingy. So it's it's been said that that area can pick presidents. And I, I think Florida's probably... I think if Democrats win Florida... It's locked up. I don't think Democrats need Florida to win the election, but I think if they win Florida, they've won the election. Mm -hmm. So that's there's an electoral advantage there. She also walks the line of being like, I mean, this is what makes her really appealing to me in that she's, you know, temperamentally, she's like able to. I don't know. Like, Joe Biden is not going to be great at, like, leading protests. Like, he, he is not going to be... I mean, when he gets all, like, riled up and mad about Trump, he sometimes stutters a bit. And it's yeah. it's not the most... I mean, I, I think the whole Joe Biden has dementia thing is ridiculous, but... The point basically is that he he is better off making sort of calm, lofty statements about you know what what the country could be, what it aspires to be, and, and for somebody to you know sort of go out and motivate the base with more like strong rhetoric, it, it seems to me that Val Demings has the ability to do that. Like mm-hmm. she, she does that well. She's also a former police officer and uh, was yeah, actually she, a well, she's chief a former for a while, chief of police. Yeah, which is actually very helpful uh given the current situation yeah so i mean the the weird dynamic though that arises there and this happened to kamala harris in the primary Mm. where like she was running on sort of some criminal justice stuff but there became this whole kamala is a cop thing yeah because she she was a former prosecutor yeah and i mean she is not she really like there weren't really instances in which she concretely opposed the things that she supports today Mm -hmm. but in val deming's case and, and i think this is to a certain extent defensible and explainable from the standpoint of you know being a police chief and you defend your department, but there were some allegations of excessive force that were made against some of her officers, and, and she de- she defended them. So I, I think there could be some baggage there. It, it could be made into a, a thing. Uh-huh. But I, I do think being a, a, a police officer is, is very helpful. I mean, Donald Trump is either saying he wants law an order in the country or tweeting about his favorite TV show. And I'm not really sure which, but he doesn't have like 
law and order experience. Like, yeah. Val Demings was literally responsible for maintaining law and order. Another reason she's appealing to me is because she is a part of the New Democrat, New Democrat Caucus, mm-hmm. which is more moderate, more focused on like, you know, fiscally responsible solutions, not more interested in like concrete problem solving than like high minded, you know, crazy proposals that'll never pass. Yeah. So I, I think that that's another reason I like her as well. Honestly, I'd be fine as fine with Harris too, because like in in some ways picking the vice president here, you're picking the person who's gonna who's going to be the Democratic candidate for president in four, eight, or twelve years. So I like that Kamala Harris like I feel like Kamala Harris and this is a discussion I want to have more in depth about how like the democratic party could become more of a, let's say globally involved advocate for more global involvement. But I feel like Kamala Harris would be well suited to take up that mantle. Like she just completely owned Tulsi Gabbard over the Assad stuff. Mm -hmm. and I, I think just, like, and this is sort of, like, a, a surface-level thing, but you just, like, you get a feel from people, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I could see her, like, conducting, understanding, like, the moral reasons for, like, I feel like she would be able to do some of the, make some of the hard foreign policy decisions that it's crucial for, crucial for presidents to be able to make. Let yeah, me put it that way. That makes sense. And so, although something that I think is, you know, possibly, Amy Klobuchar in particular has sort of fallen in, and let's say the sort of punditry talk of who's going to get picked, particularly because she was a prosecutor in Hennepin County, which is Minneapolis for many years. Mm. And there were some issues there. She had some sort of tangential relationships um, in in terms of maybe her office had an opportunity to prosecute one of the police officers that was involved in the George Floyd killing and didn't, or it's not super clear to me. There's been things that like, people are claiming i've not seen a whole lot of evidence but it's not crazy to me that it's possible that something like that could have happened yeah but joe biden has said that he'll announce his vp pick at the beginning of august Mm -hmm. and that's a long time from now (laughs) and like these are monumental events like these are these are big times but the nature of the news cycle and like what people are talking about will be somewhat different at at that point and it it seems to me like joe biden has a a personal chemistry with amy klobuchar that would mean that he might want to keep her in the running um and if she's political, like, I, I don't think she's politically viable at this point in yeah. time. 
but she could become politically viable again. So I think the only knock on Val Demings is that she hasn't run a national campaign. Mm -hmm. But from what I've seen of her, like, I don't know if you recall some of the things that I said a month or two ago about how I was concerned about Gretchen Whitmer maybe not being ready to be a national figure. But I think I've been sort of vindicated on that because she sort of launched herself into, you know, national politics with coronavirus stuff. And she's made some pretty major mistakes. She's been more restrictive than really any other governor, including her fellow Democrats. Um, and, and she's like made some faux pas. She didn't think about how people should just Google to cut their own hair. Like she's, it's just, she, she, I, I, some of the things that have happened there have given me reason to believe that she would not have maybe fared that well on the national stage. Yeah. Maybe with some time, some, you know, better experience, she'll, she'll be emerge as a, a national figure again and i think she probably will but val demings from what i've seen I, I don't necessarily have those concerns about her so and I, I think part of that comes from she's just like i mean she she's a cop who rides a harley you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i mean that's not like the kind of person that i would be friends with you know what i mean like that mm. that's not my kind of people, but that's the kind of person that I don't want to be on the wrong side of an argument with. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's sort of my take on the VP stuff. Yeah. If you have anything you want to add. No, I think that that's pretty much I pretty much agree with that. It, yeah. It, it makes sense, yeah. And then I have just a quick addendum. I have two recommendations for for you and for whoever's listening um one if you're interested in you know thinking more about and, and maybe in, in in the case of this podcast being hopeful about you know what's happening with the riots and with the protests and with everything that's going on i would recommend that you listen to ezra ezra klein's interview with Tanahasi coates who i think at this point has established himself as if not the most influential thinker on race in America mm -hmm. certainly one of them. Yeah. And then my second recommendation, I have stumbled upon oh god. this 1980s British political satire called Yes Minister. And it is so good. <laughs> it is some of the funniest television you have ever seen it's, british british television is always solid yeah apparently this was one of former um pm maggie thatcher's favorite television shows and it's sort of like i don't think you have to necessarily agree with sort of the conceit of it is that like the bureaucracy controls everything mm. and you don't have to agree with that conceit for it to be funny it, it's just such a good show um I, you're you're gonna be uploading today but I'll, I'll send you a, a link that you can put in the description to one of my favorite clips 
and it's just it's such a good show yeah uh i actually have a recommendation um if you guys have netflix there's a netflix original series called the uh space force and it's just a satire about the u.s space force it's pretty funny it has uh michael from uh the office uh as the main guy so so i've not watched that yet i i had been planning on watching it but it got i i saw some of the early reviews and it it just got torn apart Mm -hmm. like apparently like the rotten tomatoes ratings very low apparently it's not very critically Acclaim. So, yeah. but you think it's good, though? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like something that good good to watch with your friends and stuff. Like that's good. It, it was it was pretty funny, in my opinion. At least. Maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. After I'm done with <laughs> with Yes Minister, which there are three seasons of Yes Minister, and then he becomes Prime Minister, and it's Yes Prime. Oh, so beautiful. I'll, I'm, I'm gonna have to actually stuff. check that out. That sounds hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll send you a link. Yeah. Sweet. Okay, so I think that about does it. Um, This has been another episode of Foreign and Domestic. Uh, I'm Will. And I'm Jake, and we'll see you next time. Okay.